I want to read the scriptures. We're going to be our basis for today, and then I want to pray. So we're going to start with Matthew 21. This is one of the accounts of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And this is the culmination of his public ministry, of why he was here. Everything that he did was in preparation for this. And then I'm going to read this, talk about one particular word, and then we're going to go in the direction that I believe God has told us to go in. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go on into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and their clothes on them, and they set him on them. And a great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And there's a reason behind all that. There's a practice that they did on the, on the, at the uh, Festival of Tabernacles, which they would take palm branches and willow branches, and they would, the priests would walk around and, and bow down with them. So this had a meaning to them. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when they came into Jerusalem, the whole, city, the whole city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Na- from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, this is a significant day for us and for the church. And we've come not just to celebrate something that happened over 2,000 years ago, but something that's significant to each one of us and will be significant to some. We celebrate the day that Jesus made his triumphant entrance into the city of Jerusalem. And most of us can remember here the day that Jesus made his triumphant entrance into our lives. And he came fulfilling a prophecy, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so, Lord, as we take this scripture and these words, I'm asking you by the Holy Spirit to take the things that you've put in my heart and enable me to speak them forth only from your heart and that your Spirit would take these words and anoint the word and touch our hearts with them. Everyone that's in the sound of my voice today, that our hearts would be touched and moved by the power of of this word, and that those that have never been impacted by this word, it would reach into their hearts and draw them to you. And for this, Lord, I confess to you, as I already have, I don't begin to have the ability to do this, but it is only as I rely upon your precious Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, that those that are listening would open their hearts and open their minds and open their ears, that what you want to say to them, they will embrace and hear. And we take authority over every spirit that would try to hinder and distract this morning, this message which is so critical, not just to our lives, but to our eternal lives and destiny. And so we bind you from this place. We bind you from the ears of those that would listen and declare you will not stop this message getting into the hearts of those it's intended to. And for this, Father, we thank you in advance in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, the word we're going to talk about this morning is this word, Hosanna. Um, We've all sung it. We're all familiar with it. He mentions it again. It's right out of prophecy. And and the word Hosanna is a Hebrew word that comes, well, it's a Hebrew word. It was, they were familiar with it because it comes out of uh, uh, Psalm 118, verse 25. Psalm 118 is called the Hillel. It's something that they recited at holy days. And this verse 25 is basically is them crying out to God to, to save us, deliver us, prosper us. So the word means save us now. So it's a cry for salvation. But because it was used 
in their ceremonies and used in their times of celebration, it also began to take on them by this time a significance of great jubilation and celebration. But the root of the word is a cry for salvation. It also, Psalm 118 that they're quoting here, it also has what's called messianic significance. In other words, it speaks towards the Messiah coming. So as they're singing, as they're crying this out and reciting by the, by their, by their, from, from their hearts, Lord, save us now, they understand that this is speaking about the Messiah. So here we have a situation where this is, this is prophecy being fulfilled of the Messiah who's come to save them. And they've been waiting. They know who the Messiah, they don't know his identity, but they've been known because the prophecies for hundreds of years, thousands of years, has been saying that there would come a Messiah, a deliverer, to deliver Israel. Now they didn't recognize the form in which he was going to come, but they were expecting it. And many of them thought that he was coming to deliver them from the Roman dominion and domination over their lives and didn't understand what he was really coming to deliver them from. And many of us either don't know, don't understand, or have forgotten what he came to deliver us from. So the title of today's message is Saved from What? Now we use the term, are you saved? Yeah, I'm saved. And we use it so commonly and so glibly without thinking about it, but the word saved implies you were in some danger or need and someone rescued you out of that need. This is very important for those who know you are saved because we forget or maybe you never really understood what you were saved from. Down the road, we'll talk about what you were saved to. But we're going to talk about what you were saved from now. In 2 Peter chapter 1, there's so many of the books, there's a pattern to the New Testament. And I don't want to take the time this morning to go off because it'll, it'll, it'll distract me. It's just amazing. But the, 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 the final books of the New Testament are primarily strengthening the Christians who were going through terrible persecution. And I believe this is a timely word because you don't have to be prophetic to recognize that there is on the horizon, if it's not already beginning, the persecution of the church for what we believe. And so the Spirit of God always prepares us if we will listen. So these last few books of the, of the New Testament, of the Bible, of, before it gets to Revelation is talking about things to help these believers go through that persecution and not be moved, not, not to give up and, and pull back and, and under the pressure of the pressure that comes upon us in times of persecution. So Peter writes in this second letter, we're not going to take the time to turn to it this morning, he writes to them and tells them things that they need to do. And he talks about, to your dil- he talks about developing diligence, and he talks about to your diligence add perseverance, and to your perseverance add faith, and to your faith add all kinds of things. And then he comes down to the end, and he said, if you will be diligent to do these things, which means to continue to grow, if you'll be diligent to continue to grow, then you will not stumble and fall back, which means it's possible for us as Christians to stumble and to fall back. And he said, and when you do that, it's because you've forgotten, you have forgotten what you've been cleansed from. And then he goes on to say, because he knew he was near the end of his life and ministry, he said, for I am putting you in remembrance, which means they already been taught this before, but he knew they needed to be remembered, reminded of it. I'm putting you in remembrance of this. And then he says, because I know my departure is so soon, and even when my departure, I will have made provision for you so that you are constantly put in remembrance of what you've been saved from. Why is it so important? Because when you realize what you've been saved from, it helps you to not want to slip back. We saw that in, when we studied faith. We looked at Hebrews chapter 10 right at the end. It says we live by faith. The just shall live or walk by faith. Why? So that we don't pull back 
because God's not pleased when we pull back and you can pull back to the point of destruction. So we need to be building things in our lives. I'm not talking about being afraid you're going to lose your salvation, but you can slip, especially under pressure. And so one of the most important things the Bible teaches us is being reminded of what we were saved from means I don't want to even look in that direction. Another thing it does is it helps us to be thankful no matter what we're going through. Psalm 103, David, who was very thankful, says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all my iniquities, who heals all my diseases, who delivers my, delivers my life from destruction, crowns me with loving kindness and tender mercies so that my youth is renewed by the eagles, delivers my life from destruction. And David, because he was aware that God had delivered his life from destruction and continued to do that, he was constantly blessing the Lord, oh my soul. So it helps us to persevere. It helps us to maintain to be thankful. So many Christians struggle with being thankful. We go into these pity parties. We feel sorry because what we think we should be getting, we're not getting. By the way, you don't want what you deserve. <laughs> we, 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 you know, and we, life is hard and all these things and so we start feeling sorry for ourselves. <laughs> and I, when I, until I remember where I was headed. <laughs> and then I'm thankful what I've been delivered from. But the last thing we're going to talk about, the last thing it does is it keeps you from being sloppy as a Christian. That went over big. It keeps you from being sloppy as a Christian. You can get sloppy, lazy in your prayer life, lazy in reading your Bible, lazy in the things that will keep you growing and maturing because Satan understands what that word will do if you stay in that word. Satan understands if you pray daily, if you keep in communion, some of the wonderful songs we sang this morning, if you keep in, you keep in if, if you take your face out of the face book and put your face in the book. <laughs> so remembering what you've been delivered from, saved from, will help keep us from being lazy and being sloppy. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Oh, I'd be careful. This can preach. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord means a healthy reverence for who God is. So you can't even begin to walk in wisdom if you're not living in the fear of the Lord. Now that's not a fear that causes you to run away from Him. It's a fear that causes you to obey Him, a fear that causes you to draw near to Him, a fear that causes you to understand how much you need Him. It's a reference for who He is and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I want you to see that you cannot, you cannot walk in wisdom God's, unless you start with the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One brings understanding. So let's turn to First Thessalonians, excuse me, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. The current age that you and I are living in is known as theologically is the age of grace. And over the last number of years, there's been so much taught and emphasized about the grace of God. And it, it's good, it needed to be, because the church was buried in le- forms of legalism. But what happens is when you're in an era where one thing is emphasized, you begin to think that's all there is. And I like to describe it this way. This age of grace we are in is like a parenthesis. You're reading a sentence along and all of a sudden you see this open parenthesis and then there's what's called a parenthetical phrase and then there's a closed parenthesis and that speaks something of what you were reading. But there's something contained in that. We need to understand the context in which God's grace has been given. Because what's happened is the church 
is so only aware of the grace of God, and as a result, we misinterpret what the grace of God is. And we think the grace of God is like so many parents who when their children disobey them, and when you say, look, Johnny, you do that again, you're going to get a spanking, or time out if that's what you, I don't go there. You're going to get a spanking, and Johnny does it again. He says, I told you, I told, and then you want to look the other way when Johnny does it because you don't want to give him the punishment that he deserves. God doesn't look the other way and pretend we didn't do anything wrong. So we need to understand the context because to do that, we need to see what was going on before grace and what's going to go on when grace ends. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Now Paul is writing to a church in Thessalonica because they've been so caught up in waiting for the Lord to come back and some have been teaching that we've missed it because he's not here. He, he has, you know, you've, this church has missed it. He's come, but he didn't come here. And so they were panicked. So he's writing them about what this is going to be like when he comes, starting verse 3. For we're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other so that we ourselves boast of, among you of the churches in God for your patience and faith and all the persecutions and tribulations that you endure. See, this is a church going through persecution. Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So the way they went through this persecution was a testimony to the world of God's righteousness. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. And this is what's going to be like. He will come in flaming, flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of our Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day, and that day will come. To be glorified in His saints and be admired among those who believed because of our testimony among those who believed." So when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be fun for everybody. This is serious. When He comes back, there's going to be coming back with not only to take the saints with Him, but He's coming back with a fire of retribution. God is a righteous, holy God. And the wrath of God, which is what we're going to talk about today, you don't hear much about the wrath of God anymore. But the Bible's full of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is because God is a holy God, because God is a righteous God. And because He is a righteous God, He has to do something about unrighteousness. Because He is a holy God, He has to do something. He has to, he has to give Justice, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. He has to bring justice where there's been injustice. He has to, or He's not a righteous, holy God. If He just turns the other way, then He's compromised His holiness. And He can't do that. Because if He does this, this whole thing's going to fall apart. But we live in this age of grace. And the assumption has been that it's always going to last. God's grace is always going to be there. So for those of you that are listening, say, well, I know I'm not right with God, but I don't need to get right. But I'll, I'll do that tomorrow. You don't know there's a tomorrow. You're playing with eternity. Getting ahead of myself. So we're going to pull the curtain back. The covers the curtain of grace that covers us and protects us right now. It's God's grace. I don't have time to get into the scriptures in Second Peter. Where he talks about, you know, we think that the Lord's second coming, that this, this is, this, because it's delayed, it's never going to happen. He says, because it's delayed is God's grace. It's God's grace. 
Remember, the message is saved from what? Saved from what? So we're going to pull back the curtain on grace and look at the context from God's view of, of God's attitude towards man apart from grace. To do that, I've got to give you some background because this is the foundation that most of us don't have. One of the, one of the leaders, the, probably the primary leader of the Great Reformation is Martin Luther, was Martin Luther. Martin Luther is the one to whom God revealed the doctrine of grace that Paul's book of Romans is so full of. It says that we're not justified, we're not made right in God's eyes by how good we are or by our works. It's by faith in what God's done for us in Christ. And that was a strong teaching of Martin Luther. But what happened after Martin Luther died is his followers began to do what's happened today. And they began to make a mistake. They began to think that what God did in Christ was to justify the sin and not the sinner. So that grace means it really doesn't matter what you do because God's grace will cover you. And the reason this happened is they forgot or missed the main point. It's a concept that Martin Luther writes called giving God justice. This is a little teachy right now, but it's critical to understand this. We're living in a time when justice is being cried out for, and rightfully so, absolutely. But nobody ever talks about the justice God's entitled to. What is justice? Justice justice is giving somebody what they're entitled to, either because of who they are or because of what they've done. So the cry for social justice now is people are not being given the respect, they're not giving the treatment as human beings or with the status of human beings that they're entitled to because they are a human being, a creation of God. But what about God? Is He getting the justice that He's entitled to? Obviously, the answer is no. Well, what's God entitled to? What is God entitled to? Exodus 20. This is the foundation of everything with God. This is the first commandment. And God is... We talked about this several weeks ago. God is telling Israel who He is to them. And in this commandment, He's telling us who He is and wants to be to you. And God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord. The Hebrew word Lord there is the word Yahweh, which English is Jehovah, which means I am the self-existent one. Everything that exists has its origin from me. I owe my existence to no one and no thing. There's some great verses in Isaiah. I love these. I love to read these. It sends a thrill where God's, because he's dealing with people just like the church today, because they were outwardly worshiping God, but their hearts were far from him. And they were headed for a crash. And God sends Isaiah to warn them because they were worshiping God with their mouth. And God says, <laughs> he says, I'm up here and I look around. I don't see any other gods. It's just me. I am that I am. Everything else limits who I am. I want you to get a feel for this. I am the source of all existence. So everything that exists, my life, your life, everyone that's ever lived, lives because of Him. And we are breathing today because of Him. Every beat of your heart, every breath you breathe, every cell that's alive and is because of Him. Our lives are sustained by Him. And we go through our day oblivious to Him. 
kind of like if you had a child that you together gave birth to. You brought them into life. You gave them life. And you took care of them as they were growing, growing up. You changed them. You fed them. You held them. You loved them. You nurtured them. And as they grow up, they begin to mature and you begin to teach them some things and you provide their food, everything they eat. You provide all their clothes. You provide a place for them to sleep and live in. You provide entertainment for them. You provide all the things that they need and probably a lot of things they don't. And then they come to an age where they begin to assert their independence. And that's okay because your role as parents is to mature them so that they can go out on their own. But in some cases, they don't just do that. They develop an attitude towards you that they have some rights of their own because they've earned them. And they begin to show signs of rebellion towards you. What does that do to a parent? It stirs up anger. And we will often express that. There's a TV show, I won't mention it now because it ended up in some disrepute, but the, the father of the TV show had a son who was going through this, and he says, son, I took, brought you into this world, and I can take you out of this world. <laughs> well, he couldn't, but God can. What happened in the garden is God had created them for the kind of fellowship we sang with about this morning. In fact, even referred to it. And then when Satan comes in, what he, what he, his whole goal was to get them to begin to see themselves as if they had rights separate from God. Has God said to you, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? It's in the middle of the garden. Because God's trying to keep something from you. He knows that if you eat this, you will be like Him, knowing good and evil. So God's trying to keep something from you that you're entitled to. So what you need to do is to take your life into your own hands, and you can still have a relationship with God, but now you're going to take your life into your own hands so that you can relate to God. And God calls that rebellion. It's rebelling against his authority. It's rebelling against who he is. And that's what got them evicted out of the garden. God had to immediately administer a consequence to their rebellion. They couldn't be in his presence because he's a holy God. They were evicted from the garden. I got to move. Oh, boy, do I have to move on. Let's look at some examples of this wrath. Don't worry, I'll, I'll bring you back together by the end. Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. I'm sorry, no, 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 no. Genesis chapter 6. I'm off. I skipped something. I'm going to have to describe this to you. We don't have the time. God comes down. Yeah. The Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth. This is about Noah and the flood. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. And the Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I have made them. And Noah found grace. Noah found what? Grace. Grace in the eyes of the Lord. So what did God do? Because Noah's heart was right towards God, Noah gave, God gave Noah instructions of how he could be saved from the judgment of God that was going to come. But Noah had to obey the instructions, which was to build this ark. And then Noah took his, did just what God said, took his family into the ark, and then God's judgment came upon the earth. But because Noah had obeyed God, and by obeying God, God put Noah into the very thing that was going to save him when the destruction and judgment came. And the ark is obviously a type of Christ. Because those of us that have obeyed God's gospel are in Christ. 
So when the judgment comes, it will not touch you because you're in the one who made you righteous. Let's go to Genesis uh, 19. I may have time to read a little bit of this. This is another judgment. This is the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'd like to read more of this because it really describes the time we're in. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening. They already stopped at, at Abraham's tent, and Abraham has interceded for them. So that if God can find, if God can now find, I think it's 20, 10 righteous men, that he will not destroy them. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, and, the, and Lot saw them. This is angels from God. He rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face towards the ground, and he said, And now, my lords, please turn your servant's house and spend the night. So he's inviting them to come in and wash their feet. And they said, No, we want to spend it in the square. But Lot insisted strongly, so they turned to him. Um, now, verse 4. Now, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of the city of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house and they called to Lot and said to them, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may know them carnally, have sexual relations with them. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind and said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. They were virgins. Please let me bring them out to you that you may do to them whatever you wish. Only do nothing to these men since this is the reason why they've come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. And they said, this one came, listen to this. This is what they're saying to a righteous man. This one came in to stay here, to live here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now, this is what the church is getting accused of. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. This is the persecution that's coming. So they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and he came near, they came near to breaking down the door, and the men reached out, these are the angels with their hands, and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary to, from finding the door. And then the men said, Lot, have you anyone else in this house? Son-in-law, your daughters, your whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place because of the outcry of them has become great before the face of our God. We think whatever's going on in the world today, God's oblivious. The cry of it is coming up to God. The cry of sin and unrighteousness does come up to God, and it is grace that waits. Peter says, so that more may be saved and brought into the house. Verse 14. So Lot went out and spoke to it. Listen to it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who had married his daughters and said, Get up out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But his son-in-laws, to his son-in-laws, he seemed like he was joking. That's many Christians today. They think this is warning is a joking. Now listen what happens. So when the morning dawned, verse 15, the angels ordered Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. So the sons and daughters, sons and daughters didn't come because they thought this was a joke. Unless you be consumed by the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, the man took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out of the, and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they brought them outside, he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay where you are, anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And Lot said to them, oh, Please know, my lords, indeed now, you know, basically, I can't go that far. So the angels say, he said, there's a city nearby. Can I go there? Verse 21. And he said to him, See, I have found favor with you concerning this thing, which I also will not overthrow this city to which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there. For listen to this. The angel says, I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was Zoar. So God's saying, unless I get you out of there, I can't do this yet, but you've got to go. Now let's go to 2 Peter 2 because Peter talks about this. We've got to hurry. It's a picture of this. This is the New Testament. This is near the end of the New Testament 
We're going to start in verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, and but cast them into hell, that's back in heaven with Lucifer, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, we just read that, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them was tormented in his righteous soul from day to day. If you think you're being tormented now, he went through this. By seeing and hearing their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation or destruction and reserve the unjust for the punishment for the day of judgment. Especially those... We're going to stop there because I don't have time to go on any further. So let's go back to the beginning. Jesus is now entering the city of Jerusalem, and they're crying out, save us. And they don't understand why, because it was just part of their celebration, except there was an anticipation that perhaps this is the Messiah. But their cry was to save now. Save now. Jesus was entering Jerusalem that day, listen carefully, as God's gracious gift to save them from the wrath of God for our rebellion and our unbelief. He came to save us. We're going to talk a little bit about this next week. He came to save us by bearing in Himself our rebellion and our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became our sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says, His own self, He bore our sins in His own body on the tree, on the cross, that we being dead to sin might live under righteousness. By His stripes we're healed. Jesus is God's gracious gift to a rebellious world that God took our rebellion and attributed to His Son. And then at the end of this Holy Week we celebrate, He put His Son on a cross. And on that cross, God poured out His wrath and His judgment for everyone's rebellion, sin, the whole world to satisfy the righteous requirement of God's holiness and purity. There's a verse in Romans when Paul's explaining this. It says, Christ came so that he, God might be both just and the justifier. So God found a way so that he could retain his justice and his holiness and yet, out of love and mercy for us, find a way to save us from His judgment. And the only way was to take that judgment on Himself. The full... But to do that, He had to become a man. We'll talk about that next week. To do it fully, He had to become a human being like you and me. Oh, the love and grace of God is so amazing. On the cross, God poured out His wrath on His sinless Son. This is why what we read in the beginning out of Second Thessalonians, he talks about God's anger and just coming on the ungodly, but on those who, who obey the gospel, it's His love and peace. So here's what it boils down to today. On that Palm Sunday, God's gift to redeem us from the, re- the price for our rebellion and pride and unbelief. He didn't talk about that. God brought His sinless Son. And on that cross, He poured out all the anger, the kind of anger we saw in the flood, the kind of anger that came down on Sodom and Gomorrah. God poured out all of His anger and righteous judgment and punishment on His sinless Son on that cross. 
So, okay, that's great. We're all going to go to heaven. That's not the end of the story. Because you have to receive the gift. It's like Noah's children had to get in the ark. Lot's daughters and wife had to take his hand and receive the deliverance. Their husbands laughed at it and were destroyed. So the anger of God today is not for our sin. The anger of God today is for those that reject this incredible gift of love and sacrifice and grace that's offered to everyone. To refuse that gift, it's only in Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to my Father unless they come through me. Get in the ark. So when the judgment comes, you float through it, whatever it comes. So that when the fire and brimstone fall, I don't know, well, we know something of what it's going to be because Peter explains it. He said, before it was a flood, now it's going to be fire. So here's my question to you today because we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a moment. I'm going to end, I got one more thing. And I, I, I hesitate to do this, but I've got to do this. One of the founders of the Great Awakening in the 18th century in, in the United States, it was several of them, but in this area, in New England area, was Jonathan Edwards. Great theologian, great, great, brilliant man. And the, God used him to birth the Great Awakening that saved thousands upon people. But this is what he preached. This is what Charles Finney preached. This is what D.L. Moody preached. And it's interesting because their converts didn't slip back because they knew what they were saved from. Edwards preached his most famous sermon is a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Boy, does that sound scary. But if you read this sermon, what you understand is his description was of what hell was like. And his words are powerful, very, very picture pictorial. And it describes God, by His mercy, holding us up from this falling into this destruction by the weight of our own sin. And it communicates the idea that that eternity, that lake of fire which ultimately comes, that destruction, that wrath of God is only... That eternity from all of us is only one heartbeat away. It's only a series of missed breaths away. And we're dangling. Some of you are dangling, dangling out over that destruction right now. And you may be like Lot's son-in-laws that just kind of laugh at that. I've heard expressions of people say, well, I want to go to hell because my friends will be there. We have a party. There's a book called 20 Minutes in Hell You Need to Get a Hold of because it's a pastor that God allowed to go and experience 20 minutes, 20 minutes of hell. And that was just the beginning. He didn't even get to the lake of fire. This Bible is warning us. So for those of us that know we're in Christ, this is what we need to be thankful for. It was God's mercy that held you until the word got through to you by his grace. And with some of us, we were so stubborn, God had to pound at us and work at us until he found a way to get in. But maybe you're watching online this morning, or maybe you're here this morning, and you don't know with a certainty. You don't know with a certainty. This ends at 11 o'clock. And that wrath comes down. You don't know what's going to happen to you. The Bible tells you you can know and you need to know. And here's all you have to do. It's just receiving this gift that came into Jerusalem that day. This gift of Christ that God hung on a cross to pay for your sins 
as well as the sins of the world. To pay for your rebellion and your pride and your sin against Him. Jesus came for you and those of you that may be here this morning. All you need to do is to receive Him as God's gift to you into your life and then turn your life over to Him. So here's what I want to do. If that's you, I want to simply lead you in a very simple prayer. And the congregation is going to join us right now. And again, anybody that's in here. So pray this with you. You don't need to bow. Just, just look me right in the face. Say, God, I come to you today in the name of Jesus. You know everything I've ever done. Everything I've ever said. Everything I ever thought. You know the deep secrets of my heart. For whatever does not please you, I ask you to forgive me. I repent of it. Wash me in the blood of Jesus. Make me clean in your sight. Jesus, I call upon you to come into my life as my Savior. And I take my life as it is right now and I put it into your hands to be Lord fill me with your spirit that I may live strong for you for the rest of my days now if you prayed that for the first time or maybe you made a recommitment to him here's what I want you to do if you're watching online tomorrow morning you'll see there's a number at the bottom of your screen right now tomorrow morning I want you to call that number because we have some free information we want to mail out to you free of charge We want to hear from you. If you have some needs, they'd be happy to pray with you. 508-336-4110. Secondly, tune in next week, 9.30. We're going to celebrate Easter. We're going to hear how the depths of God's love for you. So do that, or better yet, be here at 9.30. If you were here this morning and you prayed that for the first time, whether you're in a balcony or somewhere back in, in the back recesses back there or wherever you are, when the service ends in just a minute... When you leave, if you go around to your right, there's our old cafe, our cafe there that says Common Ground. There'll be somebody there to meet with you because I think it's Pastor Michael out there today who will give you the same, same materials. So let's stand right now. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. You should have received a communion cup, an element. We're going to do this this morning. There are a number of ways we can do communion, but this is a celebration of thanksgiving for what Christ has done for us. This wafer represents his body, which was broken for us, pierced, whipped, beaten beyond human recognition, the Bible says. His body bore the price for our sins. And the cup contains the juice, which represents his blood that was shed for us. That blood pays for and washes away our sins. I'm going to pray briefly, and then as you take it, we're going to sing a very powerful song together. Father, we thank, you for the, we thank you for the bread, and we thank you for the cup. And as we eat this bread and this, drink this cup, we're remembering the death that Jesus gave for us until he comes back again. May we be aware every day of the price you paid so that we could be free and that we could have this hope and we could be free from what we've just heard and read. We will be forever grateful to you, our Lord and our God. We ask you to bless this bread and bless this cup. In Jesus' name, amen. You may eat eat the bread and drink the cup. Go ahead.
Release you. Reaches the 